Welcome to Redemption Gilbert on this Labor Day weekend. So I'm sorry that you don't have a cabin up north, but I'm glad that you're here with us. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. I also just want to say thank you to all of you who do invest in our Redemption Kids. As a father of three, I'm so thankful for everybody who's on that team. Uh, so we are going to continue our series, uh, We Want a King. We're actually going to start in 1 Samuel. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, go to 1 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 28. So one of my wife's favorite things about me uh, is the amount of random knowledge that I have on such a wide variety. Uh, variety of topics, whether it's from movies to medicine. She loves it when somebody just asks me a question and I confidently put forth an answer that's most likely made up. She really likes I hope you're getting the sarcasm here. So she really likes it when our kids get hurt and they come to me and I'm like, well, here, let me see. What is it? Well, let me, does it move like this? Should it move like this? Maybe it's a tendon. Maybe it's a thing. She's like, you don't know. Why are you like, you're not a doctor. And I was like, well, I did take a human anatomy class when I was a junior in high school and dissect a fetal pig. So I think I have some expertise in this. Here's why I'm telling that stupid illustration. It's because for some of us as Christians, we can know a few things and we can present to people a certain way and we can present to people like we are trusting in Jesus with all of our lives, but there is a difference between what we present to people and how we actually functionally trust God with all of our lives. And as we kind of end Saul's story and start David's story this week, we are going to see a life that only has the appearance of trusting God and where that leads and how that affects those who are around you. So if you're with us or if you're listening and you, are, uh, you, you would say of yourself, you're not a Christian or you're not a church person, and part of the reason why you're not a Christian or you're not a church person is because you look at all the church people who say one thing and do another, and you think that when we gather together, all we do is talk about people who don't believe the same as us. Well, this is a great week for you because we are actually going to talk about ourselves, and the Scripture has quite a bit to say about those of us who say one thing and do another. So this is a great week for you just to kind of lean in because uh, we're going to ask God to really search us and to speak to us and lovingly correct us this morning. So aren't you glad you stayed in town this Labor Day weekend? Let me pray for us because we do need God to help us with what, what he asked for us this morning. Father, we love you. And God, we just are so thankful uh, that you're with us and, and God, we are so thankful for your voice this morning. God, we th we're thankful for the shepherd's voice that leads and that guides and protects and corrects. And God, we want to be a people who humbly submit to your voice this morning. And that is not something that we are naturally going to lean into so we need you to supernaturally, by your Spirit, guide us and lead us into more and more and deeper, deeper life with you. So Holy Spirit, I'm praying that you would come, that you would move with great freedom, and God, that you would speak specifically to each and every one of us. God, I, I know that you have brought every person to this room or any person who might be listening online, God, with a specific intention 
to hear something from you. And so, God, would you give us ears to hear? God, give us eyes to see. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do a supernatural work in us? God, change us and transform us more and more into the likeness, into the image of your Son, Jesus. And Jesus, we pray all of these things in your powerful name. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 28, if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, it's, it's uh, turned there now. Uh, that's in the Old Testament. That's where we have been. So last week, uh, if you were with us, we saw where David had spared Saul. So David, if you're not familiar with where we are in the story, he's been anointed king, but there's been about a decade of David literally running for his life through the wilderness, and Saul uh, is extremely jealous and envious and fearful and insecure about David, really about everything. He's been pursuing him. Saul was in a very vulnerable position. David spared his life, but yet Saul is still bent on hunting David. And David actually has an opportunity to spare Saul's life a second time. You see that in chapter 26. You should read about that. And David finally, he just gets sick of this. He's like, I am sick of running from Saul. So I'm going to run into the land that's occupied by the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemies of the people of God. But, but David's reasoning is, if I go in there, Saul will lose heart. He won't want to chase me into their territory. So I'll be able to go and, and I'll be able to kind of have a reprieve from getting chased by Saul in there. And if you read chapter 27 and some interesting things that kind of happen there, David actually gets the favor of uh, the Philistine king and at the end of chapter 27, the Philistine king actually wants to go to war against Israel, against the people of God. So he mounts up his armies, and that's where we get to in chapter 28. So Saul sees this. Saul sees that there are armies that are mounted against him, the Philistines, um, and so he is afraid. Look at chapter 28. Um, we're going to start in verse 3, actually. Now Samuel was dead. That's key because Samuel was the prophet. That's, uh, he was the, the mouthpiece of God for Saul. Uh, and now Samuel is gone. He's dead. All of Israel had mourned him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. And this is really key here. Saul had expelled the mediums and the spiritists from the land. So all the people who communicate with spirits, um, those who talk to the dead, the necromancers, um, those who practice witchcraft, Saul rids them of the land. So that's a, that's a good thing. Saul does some good things. That's one of the good things that Saul does. Look at verse 4. But the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid, and terror filled his heart." Now, if you've been tracking with Saul's story, you know that fear is one of the defining characteristics of Saul's life. It's one of the defining characteristics of his leadership, um, and it's also a defining characteristic of anyone who lives a life apart from God. It doesn't mean that the people who trust God don't go through scary things, because we do, but it means what the Scripture teaches us is that perfect love of God casts out fear. John talks about this in 1 John 4. He says there is no fear in love. Remember, God is love. But perfect love casts out fear. The love of God casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But Saul uh, is constantly motivated by and, and just completely saturated in 
fear and insecurity. You see that. Verse 6, he inquired of the, of the Lord. So there is a kind of desperation that if you're in the story, uh, you should be feeling with Saul. There's a desperation that he has. So he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or uh, the prophet. So the, the Urim were these two stones. There was the Urim and the Thummim. On one side of a stone was written yes. The other side was no. The priest would kind of throw these rocks and they'd throw these stones. And if you got two yeses, it was a go from God. If you got two noes, it was a don't do it. If it was mixed, uh, then that was kind of like, uh, remember when that magic eight ball would say, ask me another time. It was kind of like that version of that. So that's what keeps happening there with Saul. He's not getting a clear answer from God because God is supernaturally not giving Saul an answer. Um, by the way, if you're interested in getting some of these stones because you got some questions in your own life, we're selling them in the bookstore now. You can pick those up. Um, be a great help for you if there's some things you're stuck on. Just kidding. That's an Old Testament thing. The New Testament provision doesn't carry over. Look at verse 7. It would make a lot of money, though. All right. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium. So he's looking for a, a witch, essentially. So I may go and inquire of her. He's looking for a witch. So he says, where can I find one of these witches? There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul now has to travel to the land of the Ewoks. Jeremy Ohm's not the only person who can make a Star Wars reference in his sermons. All right. Verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman and said, consult a spirit for me and bring up, one, bring up for me the one that I name. But the, but the woman said to him, well, surely you know that what Saul has done. He has cut off the medians and the spiritists from the land. Have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. So this is kind of the sickness of Saul in this moment. His fear and his insecurity and his self-centeredness has, has now put him in a place where he's placing his power and his authority over God's. So he's saying, look, don't worry about the judgment of God. I'll take care of you. Because his own fear and his own insecurity and his own striving for power has so warped his mind that now he's saying, don't worry about the authority of God. My authority is greater than the authority of God. Verse 11. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So she freaks out. It's almost like, hey, this never really works this good. So there's something wrong here. Something is different here. Verse 13, the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, I see a spirit coming up from the ground. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe. If you remember just the significance of robe in the narrative and in the story, it comes up again. It's coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me. God's turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Verse 16. And Samuel said, why do you consult me? 
now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy. Here's what Samuel's saying. Why are you talking to me? I'm not the one that you should be talking to, Saul. Your issue is with God. So don't look for favors from me if you haven't reconciled with him. Look at verse 17. Then the Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. Samuel saying, Saul, there's been no repentance. You're still trying to run everything your way. You're still trying to make this all about you. It's still you, Saul, at the center of your kingdom. And this can be us so often that we will call out to God for help or for answers, but there are things that we are not willing to confess or to turn from. And God superabounds in grace and mercy and forgiveness, but God is interested in relationship, not just simply transactions. Verse 19, listen to what Samuel has to say to him, he said, the Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will also hand over the army of, the, of Israel to the Philistines. So kind of not what you want to hear from a ghost. Hey, see you tomorrow. We'll be together. Verse 20, immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words, and his strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. And the rest of the section is they try to get him to eat. He doesn't want to eat. They finally prepare something to eat, and they said, you're going to need your strength for what comes next, and he goes out. So what do we learn here? Saul is crying out to God, but not for God. He's not coming to God on God's terms. He's trying to use God to get him out of trouble. It's not that you shouldn't cry out to God in, in times of trouble. That's not the lesson here. It's just that that's not necessarily trusting God or surrendering to the plan and to the purpose of God. And the way that you see that is that as soon as you're out of crisis, you're right back to treating God how you did before that you were in crisis. And again, it's not saying that you shouldn't seek God in crisis. It's just important to consider why you are seeking him. Are you just trying to use God to get out of some trouble, or are you realizing that God is God? Uh, one of my favorite accounts in the gospel narratives in the story of Jesus, if you're not familiar with this, at the end of Luke's gospel, you can read about this. But Jesus and his death and his crucifixion, he's being crucified, he's being tortured and murdered in between two thieves, two criminals. And one of the criminals does what everybody else in this whole scene is doing, and he starts mocking Jesus. And he essentially says to him, look, if you are the Christ, if you really are this king, if you really have all this power, if you really are who you say you are, why don't you save yourself? And while you're at it, why don't you save us? And then the other thief famously says, do you not fear God? There's a recognition of Jesus as God. And then there's another recognition that's very interesting. I was reading it this morning. He says, this man has done nothing. He's innocent. Well, how does he know that? Does he, does he follow Jesus his whole life? No, but there's a supernatural recognition that he has, that he's innocent. And then he says to Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? So there's a recognition that Jesus is king with a real kingdom. 
It's different than just a desperate cry because I'm in crisis. I just need to be get out of my situation uh, just because this is uncomfortable. I don't like it, but I'm not really submitting or surrendering to who you are. But in the thief here, he has a recognition of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He has a recognition of his innocence. He has a recognition of his kingdom. So again, the point is, Seek God in times of crisis. That is the appropriate thing to do. But let your seeking be surrender. Let your seeking be surrender, not just trying to use God. Flip over to chapter 31. We're going to look at the end of Saul's story. And if you've not tracked, what we have seen throughout Saul's story is we've seen this compilation of small compromises Small rebellions, small disobediences that have led literally to full-on witchcraft. And that's really how it works. Uh, You very rarely just start off going like straight to, hey, I'm going to go visit a witch. But there are a series of small compromises and small rebellions and small disobedience that leads you away from the security of knowing you are in God's will. And Saul breaks fellowship with God uh, through what you might consider a small sin. In fact, that's what Saul does when he doesn't obey God with the Amalekites. You can look back at that in chapter 10, I think it is. In fact, he rationalizes in front of Samuel and Samuel says, why did you disobey God? He's like, well, I thought it could work to our advantage. What he really meant is I thought it could work to my advantage, which is when we make small compromises, when we make small rebellions, when we make these small disobedience, it's always because we think, well, it can work for our own advantage. But the result is insecurity around God's approval. It's a lack of joy. And rather than repent and turn back to God, he turns to some other source of the supernatural, which is what we all do. Because deep down, each and every one of us, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, we are looking for the supernatural things of God. It's what we all seek as humans, but we just seek it in the natural things of the world. We look for what is ultimate, but we don't look for it in the ultimate one. And Saul has spent his life doing that. And, and, and even if you don't consider yourself a religious person, the reality is, is each and every one of us worship something or someone. We talked about this early in the story, early in Saul's story. Whatever you depend on, whatever you depend on for satisfaction or whatever you depend on for significance or whatever you depend on for identity, whatever you depend on for life, is what you worship. And all of those things are being exposed in Saul. And God in his mercy and in his grace exposes all of those things in us as well. And the scripture says, if it's anything besides God, it's an idol. And the Bible even speaks even more severely. It says it's a a form of following Satan. Samuel says that to Saul, if you remember that in Encounter. Because that's always been and always is the play of Satan to get you to worship anything besides God. In fact, to get you to worship you is his number one play. And you might not go visit a witch and you might not be part of a seance, but we can treat money like a God. We can treat romance or pleasure like a God or power or influence, reputation 
or success like a God. And I know we're not supposed to talk this way, especially in 2022, but there isn't a middle ground. The Bible just does not offer a middle ground. It doesn't offer up an option of having God plus or Jesus plus. Either God is your God with no qualifications or conditions, or you worship idols as a form of satanic worship. There is no middle ground. And I know that feels harsh, feels unfair, but that is the call of the Scripture for those who would follow God. Look at verse 31, and we're going to see how Saul's idolatry Saul's worship of himself leads to insecurity and fear, regret and shame and ruin. Look at chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons and they killed his sons Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua. So Saul, in his last moments, is watching his armies fall apart. The armies that he had sworn to lead, the armies that were to protect the people of God, that he was entrusted with, this power that he was entrusted with for the protection of others. He's watching it all fall apart. And then, brutally, he watches his, son, his very sons die right before his eyes. And the reality is, our rebellion causes harm to more than just us. So often we get kind of lulled into this thinking that our small compromises or our small rebellion or our little disobediences that happen in secret, that nobody ever sees, that don't hurt anybody else, will not have an effect on anyone else. But the scripture shows us time and time and time again that all those things do far more damage than just to yourself. They damage those around you as well, too. The, the proverb speaks, it says that the company of fools suffers harm. It doesn't say that the company of fools also does foolish things, which may happen. But it just says just the company of fools suffers harm. So you may think that in your life, your little small rebellions, your small disobediences, your small compromises won't possibly hurt anybody else. But as that story goes deeper and deeper, and as you allow it to go on longer and longer and longer, it has more of a disastrous effect on those around you. And that's what happens to Saul. Listen to how his story ends. It's tragic. Verse 3 the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. Saul's number one issue has been how self-consumed he is. And here, even in this last moment, all of the armies, have been, his army's been wiped out. His sons have been murdered. And Saul's focus is on what's going to happen to me. What are they going to do to me if they, if they come and overtake me? And so he asks this armor bearer. He asks this armor bearer to go against his own conscience, to break the law in essence, in order just to protect Saul so that Saul doesn't have to endure. He's so insecure and self-centered and self-focused, and you're seeing that in his leadership, and you're just seeing that in, in, even to the very last moment, how his selfishness 
is, is deteriorating, not just him, but those around him. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. And when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and they fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the well, to the wall at Beth Shan. It's a tragic ending to Israel's desire for a king because they didn't trust God to meet their needs. And they, they picked the one who looked the part, but he turns out to be insecure and fearful and turns to witchcraft in times of crisis. And the Philistines are now living in Israel's cities. Saul's sons have been murdered. After he commits suicide, his armor is stripped and put on display in the Philistine temple to mock Yahweh and to show the power of a false god. And then the body of Saul is fastened to a wall in humiliation and shame as the birds eat away at his flesh. It's an absolutely devastating end. The problem with Saul's kingship was not the Philistines or Goliath or David or his people conspiring against him, which is what Saul was absolutely consumed with. Saul's problem was Saul. God could have conquered all of Saul's enemies, but Saul wouldn't trust God because Saul trusted in Saul. He didn't delight in God. He delighted in himself. And so there's a few kind of cautionary lessons for us, church, that we're going to learn from, from Saul. The first thing is that just because Saul did religious things doesn't mean that he trusted God. Just because Saul did religious things doesn't mean that he trusted God. You see in Saul's life, he does a lot of good things. I mean, even in the text we read this morning, Saul does a lot of good things. He clears the land of all the witches and wizards and Harry Potter fans. He does a good thing. Saul was a, was a good dad. He cared about his kids. Saul prayed to God. He did a lot of religious things. But Saul didn't fully trust God. And it's evidence in that he didn't fully obey God. He didn't fully yield his life to God. First Chronicles speaks about this. First Chronicles is kind of like a parallel book in the in Old Testament. In First Chronicles chapter 10, it says this, Saul died for his breach of faith. Read, he didn't trust God. His confidence was in him, not in God. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. When it appeared that Saul was seeking guidance, because you can look at that and we're like, well, wait a minute, I thought that he did. When he had the Urim and the Thummim, he was trying to use God to get out of trouble. There's a difference between seeking God to know him versus trying to find God to use him. Saul didn't fully trust God. Saul was never really fully satisfied in God. God was never enough for Saul. 
when God said to Saul, I want you to wipe out the Amalekites and don't enrich yourself with the spoils of that war, the spoils of that plunder. Saul rationalized in his own mind. He's like, well, I can have both. I can, I can obey God and also enrich myself. And he rationalizes it and he tries to make it make sense for him. But because Saul, he wanted to be king and he wanted to have monuments to himself and he wanted the reputation as being a, a capture of other kings. It wasn't enough for him to just live out what God had said over him. He's like, God, I want you, but I also want what the world offers. And God says, that's not how it goes. Is God enough for you? Or is God enough for you if God also brings wealth? Is God enough for you if he also brings a, a, a spouse or if some, there's some success or there's some kind of fame or there's some kind of recognition? God, if you bring those things, then yes, you are enough. But if you don't bring those things, then I will have to go and get them on my own. And it might mean a compromise here. It might mean a small rebellion here. It might mean a small disobedience here. Uh, but God, I, I want you, yes, because I think that's a good thing to have in my corner, but I also want these things that the world offers. And when you don't have those, you get jealous and you're dissatisfied with your own life. There are two truths about those who know God and live for him. This is the call of God on the life of, of those who would follow him. You trust me completely. Your confidence is in me completely. And you're fully satisfied in me. Our spiritual issues, Christian, can be traced really to those two realities that we don't understand or we don't believe what God says about us, and we don't value that enough. This is how the gospel is the remedy for our rebellion, the good news of how much we are loved by God in spite of our sin, and the delight and joy and treasure of what we have in Jesus. This is not about, okay, so just get out there and step up your effort it's about knowing how much you are loved by God in Jesus. It's about the grace of God capturing and captivating you. This is not a message about well, what other stuff are you going to start doing for God or what other stuff are you going to stop doing for God. It's about you being overwhelmed by and identified in what God has done for you. And so if you've heard the voice of God in your life telling you that you are loved, that he died for you to make you his, because Christianity is receiving by faith what Jesus has done for you. It, it doesn't start with more doing. It starts with knowing what God has revealed to you, the depth of his love for you, despite your rebellion, despite your sin against him. And when you see what he has done for you to bring you home to him, and it captures you and captivates you, and when you see that and you know that and you believe that and you cherish that, what God desires is for your obedience to flow out of that. Saul didn't understand what it was to repent. He didn't understand what it was to turn. Saul was sorry and he wept and he did religious things and he consulted religious leaders, but he never really repented. He just went through the motions because Saul never dealt with the real issue. The real issue for Saul has always been the surrender of his heart and his life. 
And he didn't really fully trust God because God wasn't enough for him and he wasn't fully satisfied in God. And we can miss this too because we a lot of times think that repentance is rationalization. Like if, like we've repented if we've come up with reasons why we've done what we've done. Or for sometimes repentance for us looks like blame shifting. We justify our sinful behavior or attitude or our mindset because of our circumstances. Well, you don't, I had to do this in this moment. Or yes, I had to compromise here, but my circumstance dictated that. Or we shift blame. Well, like, you don't understand who I'm married to. You don't understand what my family's like. You don't understand the boss that I work for. These are the things that I had to do. And maybe we'll confess that. Maybe we'll use that. But that's not repentance. The repentance that saves your life is the repentance that changes your life. Because repentance should lead to real life change. It's not just that you've gotten some shame off your chest. It's a new way of thinking, which is what that word actually means, that leads to a new way of being. It doesn't mean that you're never going to sin again. It just means that God is changing your mind about your sin, and it starts to change the way that you live. Repentance is not that I just feel sorry for what I did or sorry for the attitude or behavior that I, that I have. Second Corinthians, Paul writes about this. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. What Paul is saying there, there is a worldly sorrow. sorrow. It's a worldly sorrow that feels bad for being caught. I feel bad that I got caught. I feel bad that I hurt somebody. I, I, I feel guilt and shame and self-pity. I feel sorrow over the consequences. And I can weep over sin, but he's saying that's not enough. It doesn't lead to salvation. There is a godly sorrow that brings repentance. And it's more than just confession. It's more than just getting things off of your chest. There's one pastor who says it's not the strength of the emotion, but the effect of the change that it produces. And it's not conditional. Uh, and, and, and repentance is not a conditional obedience or a partial obedience. A lot of times we think repentance will be the thing like, well, okay, God, I will, uh, I'll turn away from the certain activity. Or I'll turn away from the certain mindset. As long as you hold up your end of the bargain, as long as you provide for me, as, as, lo as long as you make this thing happen in my life or as long as you solve this circumstance or this issue and then I won't have to engage in that behavior any longer or I won't have to think like that any longer. But that's not what God is after when he's after your heart because he's, he's after being Lord over all. The, the statement we've said around here is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. True repentance is a full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that leads to unconditional surrender to God. The band's going to come up. We're going to close. I'm going to read that again. True repentance is full trust in God, a full confidence in God, and complete satisfaction with God that leads to unconditional surrender to God. As we close, we see that Saul's inability to trust God and to be satisfied in him, it leads to a tragic ending for Saul and his sons. 
But as you turn the page now into 2 Samuel, which is what I was supposed to teach this morning, so don't rat me out, um, the first five chapters are a mess. You have, the, you have the people of God who are fighting each other, literally killing each other, stabbing each other to death. There is, there's like a power vacuum, and there's a strive for political power, and there's a clamoring uh, for, for who's going to be, who's going to lead, and who's in charge. It's just an absolute mess. And you see, and you just see that Saul's inability to trust God has this cascading effect down through his relatives and down through the community and down through the the people of God. And our inability to trust God and to be satisfied in him and our lack of obedience has a real effect on those around us and on our community. So I mentioned those who might be listening or might even be here and you say, I'm, I'm skeptical of the church. I'm skeptical of Christians because I've seen your hypocrisy. I've seen the way you say one thing and you do another. And to that, I say, I see that. And I'm really, really sorry. And it's true. And we need God to call us to true repentance and to turn from those places where we know what is right and yet we live and do something that's totally the other way. So I will confess that. And we're asking God to change us in that. And you can see, church, how our inability to trust God and to be satisfied in him has a real effect on those around us within the family of God and those who are outside watching and peering in, waiting for us to be who we say we are going to be for the fame of Jesus and for the good of the world. For Saul, it leads to a shameful death. And it looks like the world has conquered God's king. And we, I've said this several times as we looked at Saul's story, we need to see that we are like Saul where we have rejected the lordship and the leading of God, where we have refused to trust and delight in him. And just as our very first parents in the garden turned and believed the lie, we have followed in their footsteps. And apart from the rescue of a greater king, we are doomed to die just like Saul. In our rebellion, full of regret, full of shame, full of fear. But this is what we believe. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Jesus the true king, the king that we have always waited for, would come and live the life of full obedience because he trusted and loved his father. And he was fully satisfied in his father and in his will and in his way. And he came and lived a life that we should have lived but could never live. But yet the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus would die like Saul, fastened to a tree, the king of the Jews. His enemies would mock him and strip him naked and display his body outside of the city. Except Jesus didn't die like Saul because of his sin or because of his foolishness or because of his rebellion. Jesus died a death like Saul because of my sin and your rebellion 
and our foolishness. But through the death of Jesus, salvation became available to us all. And just like through Saul's death, we're going to see David would rise up. And after the death of Christ, God would raise up Jesus. And Jesus is now crowned as king of all kings, conquering Satan and conquering sin and conquering death. And the death of Jesus puts away the Saul that's in all of us. By dying Saul's death for us, the death that you and I deserve, and when we receive that death in faith and trust in the finished work of Christ and Christ alone, we now have peace with God. We're put back together with God. Not that we've earned it or not that we've done that, but Jesus has done that for us. And he's given us a new heart that can trust God and be fully satisfied in him. And so now, we as followers of Jesus, where we were once jealous and envious like Saul, we now are free to love others in a sacrificial way, pouring our life out for the good of others. And where we are selfish and self-centered and consumed with our own little world and our own little kingdom, we can now be content and radically generous And where we are insecure and fearful, we can now rest in the hope that we have in Jesus. We celebrate all those things every week at this time of communion, where we take two elements. We take the bread and the cup that's near your chair. It's the body and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's we remember what our King has done for us. It's a tangible reminder. It's a reminder we literally taste every week of the grace and the mercy and the love of God who died for all the Saul's of the world. The Saul that's in you and the Saul that's in me. A king who gave his life for a rebellious people so that they could be sons and daughters of the most high. And if you have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, then this is yours to eat and to drink. And there might be some of you who are in the room or maybe some of you were listening and you would say of your own confession, your own admission, you have not yet taken that step with God. You need to know that you are loved and so welcome here. I can't tell you how thrilled that I'm here, that you're here. But in this moment, it really wouldn't make a lot of sense for you to do this. You'd be going through some kind of religious motion, just like Saul did. And that's, you don't have to pretend. You're free from pretending here. You're loved and accepted just how you are. Um, but there is a moment of invitation for you. There is a moment for you to consider what Jesus has done for you. And today might be the day that you take the very first step of faith in recognizing who you are apart from God, recognizing what God has done for you through the person of Jesus and his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice of his death. And today, if you're weary and wore out from trying to find life and trying to find significance and trying to find satisfaction, trying to find joy in everything that the world props up, and you've tried everything and it's left you just worn out and tired, the invitation from God is that you would come to him and you would find rest that's available today to you. For those of us um, who are Christians, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we eat 
and we drink in celebration of what our King has done for us. And then we always stand and sing because good news makes you sing. So let's do that now.